0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Rick, how are you doing? I'm doing great overall. I'm now out of a two-week flu,
1: but I'm still clearing stuff out of the pipes, a little hoarse, so if I sound a little
0: raspy, that's why... We'll just lean into the radio DJ sound. It'll be great. Of course, you're you've got this like four-day beard continuously mm-hmm. on, on your own cheek. It's true. So you're looking pretty raspy yourself. I mean, these I days. hear that this is sort of the stylish way to do it these days. So I'm just doing what people tell me to do. Um, but all that being said, I'm actually really looking forward to doing this episode today because it means that over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna be releasing a couple of episodes that I've been looking forward to for a really long time. Yeah. And it's also been just kind of too long since we've had an episode with just the two of us talking about something. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Those two conversations that we're going to be releasing are with Dr. Bruce Perry and Dr. Peter Levine. If the names aren't familiar to you, they're two truly absolute legends in the territory of understanding and working with traumatic experiences. Dr. Perry is the senior fellow of the Child Trauma Academy and co-author of The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, A best-selling book about his work with maltreated children. He's one of the world's leading experts on the impact and treatment of traumatic experiences during childhood. Dr. Levine is the creator of Somatic Experiencing, which is a body-oriented approach to the healing of trauma and other stress disorders, and he's the author of the classic book, Waking the Tiger. Uh, Peter's worked in the field of stress and trauma for over 40 years. Uh, He's a friend of yours as well, and he's received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the United States Association for Body Psychotherapy, so an incredibly established guy. As you might imagine, some of the topics that we explore during those two episodes could be challenging for many people. We're going to be touching on material that could easily bring up some of the most vulnerable memories and painful experiences a person has gone through. I think that the material we explore in those episodes could end up being truly some of the most helpful stuff we've ever shared on the podcast. But at the same time, in order to kind of get the Good out of it, we need to be able to resource ourselves so we're not overwhelmed by it. And that's kind of a challenging balance to walk. So that's going to be the focus of today's episode. How can we resource ourselves to deal with challenging emotional experiences generally and traumatic experiences in particular? So, sound good to you? It's a really timely topic
1: and it's very relevant, uh, not just for people who are grappling with the most acute and most intense forms of trauma. But people in general who uh, are grappling with just the long shadow cast by their own childhood Mm. uh, with maybe no real traumas or perhaps a lot of little micro traumas that have added up to something really big. So the application here is very general, and I'm glad we're talking about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So before we get into the core of today's episode, I do want to give people a quick reminder about our new Patreon page. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, and I'll also include a link to it in the description of today's episode. For less than the price of a couple cups of coffee a month, you'll receive a variety of benefits, which include expanded show notes, access to special episodes, and of course, the knowledge that you're helping us continue to create this content and provide it free of charge to anyone who needs it. So getting into what we're talking about today, I'd like to start by looking at this kind of therapeutically. You have whatever it is, 35-ish years of working with people clinically to kind of ballpark. So let's say that you're working with somebody who's had in their past a intense traumatic experience or experiences. They'd clearly be benefited by processing that experience on some level, but that's a really hard nut to chew, to use a metaphor for it. Um, understandably, they really struggle to think about it, touch it or otherwise do any of the kind of conventional things that one might do in a therapeutic setting in order to feel better about or process that experience. What are some of the things that you would do with that person in order to let them to start to contact that material in some way without being overwhelmed by it?
1: Great question, great setup. So, first point is to appreciate the eventual necessity of getting in touch with that material in some ways over some period of time. And we can deal with the impact of painful, even traumatic life experiences by developing, let's say, resources around them, like a sense of perspective or uh, the internalization of experiences that in effect can compensate for what happened in the past. Like for example, today, Uh, really emphasizing the importance of good friendships in your life, in part to take into account the loneliness, bullying, and maybe interpersonal abuse you may have suffered as a kid or as an adult previously. But that alone is not enough. That that material will persist if we don't eventually get at it. Now, the getting at it doesn't mean that we need to re-traumatize people, or that a person needs to spend spend as much time in the material, clearing the material, as they as those experiences lasted for them when they were younger. All right, but no way around it. Eventually, we need to uh, experience things out of ourselves. Thus, the need eventually to come into some kind of contact with that material, which then leads to the question, of course, of how to do that skillfully. So I'll give you a couple of headlines, really three headlines, when I initially am working with someone. Um, th- as soon as you start to realize, as a therapist, uh, and this would apply, I think, as well to coaches or people in situations such as mindfulness teachers, self-compassion teachers, or even just simply talking with a friend, where you start to realize, ruh uh, there's more going on here than meets the eye. And when that happens, it's very useful to slow things down. In other words, when you suddenly start to realize that there could well be a big issue here, or you're starting to stumble into some kind of swamp, you thought you were walking through a meadow full of flowers, and suddenly you realize, whoa, (laughs) you know, under those flowers is some real quicksand. Slow down and be careful. And so then you assess for three things. One, challenges, classic model. How intense is this material uh, for them? It's not how intense do you think it ought to be or Mm -hmm. how intense was it in the last person you worked with maybe who had kind of a similar experience, like they grew up in a really impoverished environment or they served a combat tour or they had a physical accident happen to them or they were assaulted in some way. It's not one size fits all. How intense is this material? How challenging is it for them, including based on when it happened? Uh, things that happen when we're younger uh, tend to carry much more emotional intensity when they erupt into consciousness than things that happen to us usually when we're an adult. So level of challenge. Second key question, very important question, what are the vulnerabilities of this person? For example, is this someone who, uh, because of repeated traumas, is particularly vulnerable to new trauma or was particularly vulnerable to the later traumas that got laid down? Was there a vulnerability? Is there a physiological vulnerability? Is this, for example, uh, someone who was born a couple of months prematurely as an infant with a very raw and underdeveloped nervous system upon which maybe a whole bunch of necessary but painful and invasive medical procedures landed for the first six months of their life? What are the vulnerabilities then? And also, what are the vulnerabilities in the person today? Is this someone who has a personality structure that is maybe more toward the borderline end of the spectrum, and they're very vulnerable to feeling uh, anxious and uh, needy in their relationship with a caregiver, like a therapist? That's a vulnerability that's going to affect how you manage a trauma. Um, do they have a very distractible, uh, attentional system are they, is it hard for them to, to stay focused on something that might be beneficial? Uh, are they uh, you know, vulnerable to uh, self-criticism? Can they just go really fast into feeling like a terrible person, permanently damaged or broken, as soon as they start accessing some of their material? What are the vulnerabilities? And the greater the vulnerabilities and the greater the challenges, that leads to the third inquiry the more they need resources. So then here, two, I'll do an assessment on resources. What's their level of what's called distress tolerance? Can they be in touch with pain without being completely sucked into it? Can they um, witness? Can they step back from their material and witness it mindfully rather than being identified with it? Uh, can they pull in the feeling of others who care about them Or alternately, does that trigger an underlying vulnerability that as soon as they start bringing to mind the sense of people who care about them, that immediately leads to intense, often young longings to be cared about, which leads to uh, the expectation based on their history of betrayal and and pain, which then leads to pushing away uh, the felt sense of being cared about by others, even though that would be a critically important resource for them. So there's an assessment phase that I think is very important. And uh, I think there's kind of a funny old line that therapists rush in where angels fear to tread. And uh, particularly if we have time with someone, uh, it's better to respect the power and the depth and the pain uh, of this material and slow it all down to unpack
0: things and air them out. And first of all, do no harm. Hmm. That's a great framework, I think, as an overview for interacting with this kind of material. And as we go through this with that more clinical orientation, I think it's really possible for somebody listening to almost kind of reverse engineer this in themselves to think about, okay, what are some of my challenges personally? What are some of the vulnerabilities I might have personally? And then alongside that, what are some of the resources that that person could bring to bear to meet those challenges and kind of aid those vulnerabilities to put it a certain kind of way. So focusing on that for the moment, we've created the structure of challenge and vulnerability and then bringing resources to bear to try to address them. What are some of those key resources that are particularly important to people who might be facing a challenging or traumatic experience? So as full disclosure, we kind of wrote a book on this whole topic. It's called Resilient. I'd like to think it's pretty good. So if you're interested, you could go and check that out. But what's kind of the Notes version of this?
1: Yeah. I think it's helpful to separate out what happens when you're triggered from the rest of your day, the rest of your life even. So I want to talk about the second one first. With regard to someone who has had painful, challenging, stressful, even traumatic life experiences, even a single acute traumatic experience that is invasive today. And also, let's say, really affects someone. Maybe someone is inhibited about or really, really uncomfortable uh, opening up to others out of fear of being betrayed as they were when they were younger. Well, That single event even can cast a long shadow today in many, many different situations. So generically, if someone's been traumatized, key issues related to that are a sense of helplessness and defeat, because by definition, trauma is inescapable pain of some kind. You can't get away from it. It's invasive. It got you. So you weren't able to have a sense of agency or efficacy with what occurred innately. So generally, it's really good to look for opportunities to feel like you're more like a hammer than a nail, to look for opportunities in everyday life uh, generically to sort of compensate for what happened to you and build up a sense of efficacy, capability. You can choose the salt instead of the pepper. You can not say a word or you can choose to say that word. You're the chooser. You're someone who can make things happen. You can make choices you can pursue your aims. You can be successful about that as much as possible. Or alternately, generically, uh, the nature of trauma is pain, which calls for compassion and self-compassion. So building up the resource in general of compassion for yourself is another thing that's especially—it's relevant for all of us. You know, much as the sense of agency is relevant for all of us, but it's particularly generically or generally relevant for people who've had to deal with trauma. A third general purpose resource is the feeling of worth. It doesn't always happen that when someone is traumatized, there is shame alongside it, but often it occurs. Uh, For example, if you are, let's say, just a passenger in a car and the driver um, gets into a terrible accident and is, you know, killed in a really gruesome way, uh, you don't feel guilt about that, probably. uh, But it's still invasive and horrible. On the other hand, uh, routinely, particularly around things like sexual molestation, as unfair as it is, people can end up feeling somehow tainted themselves or to blame uh, or just, you know, damaged in some way. So generally, it's often good to really, really focus on opportunities to build up your self-worth in genuine ways. Where, for example, you look for moments when others from the outside in are being acknowledging or praising or grateful to you or or cherishing or friendly towards you. That's an opportunity to grow self-worth multiple times a day or on the inside out, just your own recognition of your capabilities, your good intentions, uh, the radiant, wakeful, innately good, heart inside us all, way down deep, Uh, absolutely unstainable and undefeatable, whatever your path might be, but focusing on self-worth. So Mm -hmm. we have these three big resources in general that are especially relevant for people with a trauma history, sense of efficacy and agency, number one, number two, compassion, and especially self-compassion, and number three, self-worth.
0: That's a really fantastic list both in terms of general purposes and specifically for people who are dealing with challenging experiences, to throw kind of two more on the pile here. I think that, I'm trying to find the right way to phrase this, but a appreciation of your own courage alongside mm. the sense of self-worth, that's I think great can- for us. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, that's very good. Well, thank you. Yeah. And I'm just thinking of friends of mine here, actually, who have gone through some pretty heavy stuff. And to your point, a lot of the time, the survival of a challenging experience can leave a feeling of shame and weakness on the person who experienced it. But logically, I feel like almost the opposite is the case in a kind of way, where much of the time when somebody has gone through... Something like that, they have emerged from it because of their own ability, courage, stick to ness whatever you want to say, ability to heal and repair and move on. And at the end of the day, become an effective, good hearted person, particularly if they're engaged with their own healing process here. It probably means, man, you know, you had to put some effort into that. And that's something that's really worth honoring generally. And also specifically just the idea of courage, Um, the idea that it is really hard to interact with this material. It is in some ways easier to stay in a state of suffering or to not touch the hot coal that you know is lighting the house on fire, but touching it hurts. It's a rather tortured metaphor at that point. Apologies for the extension of it, but it was kind of the first thing that came to mind. I, I think that there is a true courage in that and kind of honoring and appreciating the extent to which we have been courageous by facing that discomfort, I think is, for starters, incredibly honorable and usefully incredibly true. Um, So we don't have to kind of force it to be true because it already is. Then the second thing that I would say is alongside self-compassion, self-confidence, one of the things that really came up in our conversation with Joanne Cacciatore on grief was this idea that often when somebody experiences something really painful and has understandably a lot of residue from that experience, there can be a lot of messages from the community around them focused on moving on, like just feel better, get over it, whatever it is. And those messages are often actively counterproductive in addition to not being particularly useful. And having a confidence and assuredness that you're not still feeling discomfort because there's something wrong about you or because you're not tough enough, but because you went through a really legitimately, incredibly challenging experience. And you will move through it in whatever way is appropriate for you in your own time, at your own pace, and you'll arrive at a point of healing that is appropriate for you and for the experience that you went through.
1: I think that's really wonderful and kind of a maybe add on to something you're saying uh, is that when we've been traumatized, by definition, it was a horrible event. And there may have been a lot of them. It may have been the entire childhood or the entire 15-year history of a marriage that was full of different kinds of abuse. Uh, It was horrible. And in part because of the negativity bias of the brain we tend to really focus on whatever's been horrible, whatever's been painful, negative, large and small. And it's, I think, generically relevant for people who've been traumatized to focus on and to become able to focus on all the things in one's life that are going okay, including the small ones, that I move a little piece of metal and suddenly fresh water comes out. That's pretty cool, you know, or I have a job that I like, or I have a friend, or uh, I have a partnership, uh, or uh, my dog likes me, right? Or I live in a relatively safe area, or I like the fresh air around my home, whatever it might be to really keep in mind a kind of bird's eye perspective on the whole of your own life and all the many things in it that are going reasonably well not perfectly, but reasonably well, and even more broadly, looking beyond oneself to human society altogether, all the children who are laughing, all the people, and while sometimes there might be a kind of envy arising, like, oh, I wish I was happy like them, that said, we can be aware of the many, many good things that are going okay, not just getting sucked in to the few that are not going okay. And this is not about denying real issues like global climate change or injustice or the dogs that keep barking in the house next door and won't let you sleep. It doesn't mean overlooking any of that. It just means developing the general capacity to see the big picture, including the things that are good within it.
0: If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney Show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years, and the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice complement to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, The Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to The Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OSO1 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off, oneskin.co, with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago, he's a professor of genetic epidemiology, and the scientific co-founder at Zoe, and the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. So, moving on from that general territory of strengths that we can bring to bear alongside challenging experiences, let's say that somebody's listening to our conversation with Bruce Perry, where he gives some pretty specific descriptions of extremely challenging experiences, in the act of listening to that, that person's maybe remembering back to their own childhood, and some painful memories are coming up. In that moment, what are some things that somebody can do practically to calm and regulate themselves, either allowing them to safely disengage with that material and turn off the episode altogether, or allowing them to continue listening without discomfort? If it's okay, I'd like to reply to that in two parts. Part
1: one is what are key psychological resources to develop in general that are relevant to, second, what to do when you're triggered and all the red lights are flashing and you're uh, in touch with the trauma material? Okay, so key resources. A key resource, absolutely, is mindful disengagement, being able to step back and witness what's happening. Uh, There's language like uh, the observing ego that's used for this. There's different terminology. But it's basically the capacity to uh, get some distance, get a kind of buffer, um, some room to breathe between ourselves and the experiences that are painful and difficult for us. Uh, One way into that, for example, is to have the capacity to uh, label or note what we're experiencing even with a sing- with a simple word, such as anger, pain, frozen, back in Baghdad, something like that. And research shows that actually, as we um, uh, label our experiences, that reduces activity in the amygdala, the alarm bell of the brain, and increases activity in the prefrontal cortex, which gives us more top-down regulation related to our experiences, so we're less swept away by them. Maybe... 80 or even 99% of us is thoroughly plugged in. That's an old saying from the human potential movement. It's like your finger in the wall socket, right? But 1% of you is able to retain some distance from the experiences. That's absolutely critically important. A second general capability that's very useful uh, for application in the moment when we're really upset is to be able to calm the body relax it, calm it. Um, We can train in what Herbert Benson's research has called the relaxation response so that our resting state, sense of calm and tranquility and and relaxation in in mind and body is pretty good. And then we can train as well in recovering back to that baseline as soon as possible when we're upset. So that's the second major resource, calming the body. A third major resource is... Uh, honestly, the feeling that others are with you, who care about you. And it could be just as simple as knowing that your grandmother loved you dearly. And you can get in touch with that feeling. That's you know We're not meant to face trauma alone. If you think about our hunter-gatherer history, for hundreds of thousands of years as human beings, and then for another couple million years before that as manu-fa- tool manufacturing hominids, uh, and then even Before that, as kind of smart monkeys, essentially. Well, uh, we lived in bands. And when people were in pain in the band, uh, the caring and support and helpfulness uh, and protection of other people in the band was a critically important thing to experience and have. So today, when we feel that others are with us, uh, social support is kind of the funny term for it. It's much easier to bear the trauma. The last resource I'll just name here is a muscular stance of being on your own side. And we develop that in lots of ways. Often I think we develop it through facing challenges, including physical challenges, where we have to kind of hang in there, you know, finish the morning jog or uh, lift that weight the one last time, hold the yoga pose 10 more seconds. We develop a kind of willfulness for ourselves. We also can develop this by uh, tuning into the ways in which we are loyal to others or supportive toward others and then apply that toward ourselves. Uh, whatever our path is, this stance that you want to not be defeated by this trauma. You want to heal it. You're trying to treat it, you know, inside your own mind as you come into contact with it. And you don't want to just reinforce it. You don't want to knuckle under. To it and have it grab you and and overwhelm you and smother you and so forth. So it doesn't mean being unrealistic about how long it will actually take to clear this out especially with a brain that's designed to retain traumatic memory uh, in order to avoid that sort of thing in the future if at all possible. Um, it could take a while but along the way, especially when you're triggered, it's really important to be able to find your way to this feeling of huh, I'm gonna deal with this and uh, I'm not defeated uh, and I'm gonna be resourceful and take initiative uh, in how I deal with this and bring, as you said earlier, Forrest, courage to the process.
0: Awesome, yeah, no, I think that that's another great list of those kind of general application skills for while you're in the experience of being activated by something that's really legitimately challenging. Again, moving from the general to the specific, What are some kind of practices of calming the body or releasing from the material, as you said, that could be legitimately helpful to somebody?
1: So let's suppose that you're now in touch with the so-called negative material, the trauma material. And one way into it is that maybe you deliberately want to contact it to start clearing it out. I think of my own childhood, uh, not traumatic, but really quite unhappy and with a lot of emotional residues. And in effect, I feel like I emptied my own bucket of tears, one spoonful at a time. And I would deliberately go into that bucket. I would try to be resourced while I went into that bucket to release it, to experience it out, one spoonful at a time. Or a person might find themselves suddenly reactivated perhaps a loud banging sound nearby, or walking in to meet your new boss, who weirdly looks just like the world's worst football coach that you grew up with when you were in high school. It's not the same person, but it just looks like that. And suddenly, you're pulled back in. So either way, let's say now you're actually in contact with the material. What can you do? Peter Levine uh, will talk about this, you know, when you hear him on the podcast, but he has a wonderful term. He calls it pendulation. And really it means swinging like a pendulum into the material to contact it, to experience it to some extent, and then whoosh, swing back out. Gather your breath, find your footing again, and then swing back in maybe a little more deeply. Now the rhythm of the pendulation And the arc of those swings really depends a lot on the material and the vulnerabilities and the resources of a person. If you can open up to the material and just have it flow through you in a very intense kind of way, yet in a way that clears out a lot of old crud, great. On the other hand, maybe all you can do is touch it for a few seconds lightly, and then you swing back out out again. You know, that is just a detail, but the essence is simple, pendulation. So that's one thing to give yourself. Second is to um, split your awareness. In other words, to be aware of the traumatic material while being aware of other things as well. For example, uh, the horrible imagery, let's say, from a past event is, is in your mind. If you possibly can, also try to be aware of the continuity of your own breathing. You're still breathing. You're still okay. Now, if for some reason paying attention to breathing also re-traumatizes you, because maybe you were being choked or you had a hard time breathing way back when, uh, you know, use another thing. But being aware of the sensations of breathing in the body uh, tends to be helpful to us. It gives us a direct feeling that we're going on being, and as some research shows. When we tune into body sensations, that tends to reduce anxious rumination or other kinds of preoccupations related to the trauma. Or you might be able to be aware of the room as a whole. You're in a room that's an okay room, you like your room, there's a lock on the door, you're safe in your room, and you can be aware of the decent environment that you're in right now, even while you're in touch with that tough material. So that's the second thing, trying to divide awareness. So you're aware of more than the trauma material. Third, definitely, is to mobilize active forms of compassion for yourself. To have a a warmth, a friendliness, or just a camaraderie with the whole horror show and injustice of what happened way back when. Like just to, you know, frankly, to put it a certain way and find your own ways. I'll have my ways. You'll have your ways wow, that was horrible. That really sucked. Anyone would have been really upset about that. You know, that was so painful. That was so unfair. They were such jerks. Whatever that might be, that spirit of recognizing the awfulness of what happened and standing and witnessing, in effect, you know, bearing witness today at the magnitude of what happened back then is a very good thing to bring to bear. Uh, as an as an aspect of compassion for yourself, which could also have uh, qualities in it, self-compassion, that are sweeter, tender, like, oh, you know, just that incredibly nurturing shaking of the head you would bring to a friend or you hear a story in the news or someone tells you about something that happened to someone they knew. Just, wow, I'm so sorry. That feeling of self-compassion, that's a third really, really useful thing to do. It's useful to be able to, in a fancy word, deconstruct the impact of the trauma event. So first off, we can separate what happened from the impacts it had. And I think that's very important. Sometimes people get caught up in going back over the events again and again and again and again and again, again, but that doesn't clear out their impacts. The impacts are the images we're left with, the emotions we have, uh, the sensations in the body, the kind of learning, quote-unquote learning, such as uh, becoming very inhibited or feeling muzzled, moving into dissociation, feeling sleepy, spacey, feeling frozen. These are impacts, right? And that's what we want to clear out. And that distinction right there is really important, right? Even if you Can't remember what happened if you're still carrying around the impacts. As Babette Rothschild puts it, the body remembers. So, with the impacts, it's very useful to pull the threads apart rather than just face them as this congealed brick like, ugh, knotted up mass. So, you kind of pull apart what are the body, and here's a way to do it. One way to do it is kind of analytically what are the body sensations associated with this material? and try to note them to yourself. Tension. Collapse. Loss of energy. Disgust. A hole in the pit of my stomach. Sensations. Next, emotions. Fear. Anger. Or maybe some detail like helpless outrage or hurt under the vengeful fantasies. Whatever that might be, try to identify and unpack the emotions, all right? Thoughts. What are various beliefs that developed related to the impacts of the trauma? Beliefs like, I'm no good, or no one will ever love me, or the world is an endlessly dangerous place and you have to keep your guard up every second of every day. Whatever beliefs might be, or maybe all men are jerks, or all women are jerks. Fourth, desires. What are the longings, the desires, the wishes, such as a wish for rescue or a desire uh, as a kind of plan for the future to never be vulnerable again or never enter into a romantic relationship or an erotic relationship again? Those might be desires. Anyway, it's very effective to kind of pull apart the threads experientially of the impacts of the trauma. And even bringing in a little Buddhist psychology here, if you can do this, to recognize the nature of the trauma material. The nature of any psychological material is to be impermanent. It's transient. Even if it keeps coming up, it has a kind of dynamism to it. And as an experience, it's inherently ephemeral, second after second after second. So it's impermanent. It's made of parts. It's compounded. It's interdependently arising. The experience occurred for many, many reasons, 10,000 causes upstream of that moment of impact of whatever happened to you. And therefore, any kind of trauma material, even the most compelling, even what feels like the the most weighty, is phenomenologically. In terms of our actual experience, it's empty of substance and foamy and insubstantial and cloud-like and empty of absolute self-existence. And it doesn't mean it doesn't exist or that it's some kind of cosmic void. It's just that as we cultivate the sense of the emptiness of all of our experiences, the most pleasurable ones and the most horrible ones, then we can become less attached to them and less caught up in them and more spacious and peaceful in our relationship with them. That's useful in general. And you can see immediately how incredibly useful that is. That kind of insight into the nature of all experiences is actually very relevant for grappling with trauma.
0: Well, that's a remarkably deep reflection there at the end about the nature of experience and the foamy insubstantiality on which all things rest. So uh, in classic Rick fashion, you really kind of took it with the spin at the end there. I enjoyed that one. I didn't really see it coming. Uh, But, you know, it's a wonderful note to kind of wrap some of this material on truly. And Of course, none of that, as you're saying, is dismissing the intensity, the realness, the fullness of these experiences. It's just kind of a broader reflection on the nature of experience as a whole, which, as you're saying, you know, none of us really know exactly what's going on here. And all things do eventually fade into dust, including our suffering, you know, for better or worse. Um, And I do think that that's a wonderful note that uh, ties in in actually a really lovely fashion, to a book you have coming out pretty soon. So I'm looking forward to talking about that also more in the future. That's great. Good. So as we come to kind of a soft landing here, is there anything else you'd like to leave people with before we get into these uh, next two episodes with Bruce and Peter?
1: Well, I have two reflections here. and I'll try not to ramble, and if I do, just... you know, <laughs> Apply the hook. <laughs> get the hook. Uh, well, the first is to appreciate that trauma is natural. Now, hurricanes are natural. Lightning is natural. And they can have tremendous destructive impacts. But we are designed to be impacted by horrible, painful, difficult experiences, especially when we're younger, and especially the ones that involve other people. We're designed to be affected by them. And I just think it brings it into perspective somehow to realize that Uh, if you've been traumatized, you're designed to feel traumatized by traumatic events. It doesn't, understanding this doesn't make the impact any less, but it can give a kind of perspective to it. People often think, oh, there must be something wrong with me. I'm still so affected by this. No, it's because of everything that's right about you, including your own innate biology, that you're still so affected by this. And that, to me, frames it in the right way. The second perspective I want to offer here, and it's a little tricky to talk about, is the ways in which many people who've been traumatized describe post-traumatic growth, to use a phrase. The things they learned by going through those the experience or recovering from it, the gifts they now have that they can share with others who may have gone through similar experiences or be going through similar experiences a kind of reparative process, a regenerative process, you know, the phoenix rising out of the ashes, some vision of that that's real in a person's life. Um, That's good to keep in mind. And I think that there's a natural process here where traumatic things occur, and then people are just shaken by them, and they're recovering from the shock, and time goes by, and sometimes years go by, And then eventually, possibly, there is a process of recovery that is really noble and courageous, as you said earlier, and worth appreciating and respecting. And none of what I'm saying here is about justifying traumatic events and so forth. It's to celebrate and to honor the profound innate resilience of the human heart.
0: Yeah, I think that's a wonderful thought to close this particular episode on. Again, really looking forward to the next couple of weeks and, you know, really interested authentically in people's reaction to those episodes. So please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, There's a contact form on our website. You can also email us at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. I'm not able to respond to every email, but I do promise you that I read all of them. So truly, let us know your experience with this. Uh, before we wrap up today's episode, I do want to remind you once again about our new Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And you can learn more about that through the link that I will include in the description of today's episode. Also, if you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate your support through rating and subscribing to it. And if you feel so motivated, maybe even telling a friend about it. It really does help us out. So next week, the episode is going to be with doctor Bruce. So next week, the episode we're going to be sharing is with Dr. Bruce Perry. He's going to be talking about the impact of childhood experiences and particularly traumatic ones, and some of the things that people can do in their lives as adults to start to unwind from those challenging experiences. So until then, thanks for listening.